I actually think that there's a huge appetite for people participating in their driving experience and they're not going to surrender, even though the technology might be safer. I actually think people, you know, they love the power that driving brings and the freedom that that kind of implies. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Uh, very nice to have Vincent Heringer back on the show. How are you today? Um, well, thank you, Paul. It's always nice to be here. Yeah, well, uh, look, I'm really looking forward to having a chat to you today. We've got some some pretty interesting topics, i got to say. So the title I know that's gone out on uh, on some of the streams begins with Tech Wreck because there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that's a bit crazy this week. We've got uh, Twitter and Elon to uh, to chat about. Mm-hmm. We have Intel going through some some challenges around staffing with a, a 20% uh, drop in their revenues. We've got Apple imposing uh, what some are calling a new Apple tax. Ford um, closing down some of their uh, autonomous vehicle experiments. Rather expensive experiments, $2 billion, uh, US invested there. It's a bit crazy at the moment. So, it is. Uh, but before we jump in, remind listeners where you fit into this big wide world of podcasting, media, tech. Um, okay, I'll well, hand it to you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show again. And um, yes, I've, I'm part of your whānau because my podcast, This Climate Business, is uh, in your stable of shows, and that's a bus- uh, that's a show about climate and business. Funnily enough, you you might guess it from the title actually. <laughs> Uh, so I've had a long interest in media. I love innovation. I love talking to entrepreneurs and innovators. So that show is about turning the climate crisis into opportunity because, you know, the shift from a fossil fuel extractive economy to a regenerative low emissions economy, a green economy, is it's very exciting uh, and there are lots of opportunities in there. Uh, I'm an investor in a venture capital fund that is all about that. Um, and also I, um, a part owner and co-founder of a media business called The Feed, which is about the future of food. Awesome. I love it. I love it. All these futurist uh, topics that, uh, that definitely gets me going. Um, Better at the future than I am at the present, it must be said, <laughs> but um, any minute now I'll hit the jackpot. <laughs> um, now, we should thank our show partners for the, the great job that they do of getting behind the show and making New Zealand Tech Podcast possible. So thank you to Vodafone, uh, Spark, Two Degrees, HP, Guerrilla Technology and Deal uh, for their support of the New Zealand Tech Podcast and the broader um, New Zealand tech and innovation ecosystems. Now, in terms of news coming through, a little bit hard to decide what what to tackle uh, first, but probably Intel's uh, ongoing challenges is quite a big deal mm. uh, a, a 20% drop in in year year over year revenue for their for their last uh, last quarter uh, so that's fallen to 15.3 billion US dollars and that was sort of where you know it was expected to be but it really puts Intel into a very very challenging position because there's also this you know slowdown and and you know, people buying their PCs and, and laptops. Mm. Mm. Uh, of course, Apple have moved away from Intel. So, you know, their slice of the market, which, you know, was in the past helping Intel, uh, you know, any any uh, market share that Apple have on that front, um, 
hurts Intel now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and you know, there's this ongoing you know potential for much more of the industry to to move away from um, from Intel chips. They are sitting there with the changes in the US, where Biden's looking to uh, ensure that future. Uh, microchip manufacturer happens as much as possible on on US shores, uh, so they're looking to take advantage of that in terms of uh, you know take some of those those US government funds to build their own um, uh, yeah, fabrication plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but how that actually plays out is, uh, I, I mean, think, is is far from a done deal. Yeah, and, and Intel are not alone in experiencing pain. I mean, we're going to talk about Meta. We're going to talk about um, Forward in a minute, uh, uh, you know, on, on in regards of share price, all the tech companies are experiencing quite a lot of pain at the moment as, uh, as share markets uh, kind of reflect the economic reality of a downturn. They're kind of coming at both ends, isn't it? It's, there's a supply issue just a, around actually materials going um, into chip manufacturing, and this is a squeeze uh, globally. But you've also got this downturn. Uh, and the economy fueled probably more than anything else than by inflation, uh, you know, taking the cost of living up really high for people. And so upgrading their tech, you know, into the latest gear uh, or entering the market as a young person has become so much more expensive. And so that's having quite an effect on demand. And uh, so the, the, the tech companies are kind of getting squeezed on, on both ends, the supply side, labour markets, materials, shipping, logistics, still quite tough. And you've got the demand side, uh, um, you know, affected by you know, a, a major war in Europe. And ev- even if it's actually not that major a war, it, it, it has a, is having a big psychological effect. And then the, the real thing is the cost of living. Yeah, and it's really widespread. But I guess in, Intel have been, you know, we look at, we look at the sort of the Metas and Microsofts and, and Googles who who have been doing these more maybe more quiet layoffs where they're not necessarily mm-hmm. you know announcing something uh, to the share market and so on you know publicly, but in the background are, are also either freezing hiring or, or laying off numbers of people. But of course, yeah, in Intel almost kind of looks like they're on their way out. Do you really um, think so? That's quite a big call, uh, Paul, because uh, their technology has been so dominant in anything other than Apple for so long. Do you think there's more than just an economic downturn? Do you think there's some technology issue there with their well, performance? Well, yeah, that, I mean, they have had issues over quite a number of years, and so what they used to do to sort of iterate their chips, they had this sort of TikTok method where, you know, one year they would they would – bring in sort of big changes to their chips. The next year would be more incremental. And as part of that that process, they were basically moving to smaller and smaller uh, dies for their chips. So we had these chips that kept shrinking. Now, Intel used to always lead the way on that front. Now they're the ones that are on the back foot. So Mm. they haven't been able Mm. to keep up with the rest of, of um, of the sector. And, you know, that's hurt them. And then they've they've had uh, a lot of competition from AMD in terms of making those, yeah, that's those right. uh, mm. you know, Intel, uh, you know, uh, well, the, the 64-bit chips, I, th- I think actually you, you give some credit to, um, uh, to, to AMD on the, on the, you know, way that these chips work 
work today, but they've had a lot of competition now to a degree. Intel has 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 come back in you know in the last little while in terms of their competitiveness mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Uh, with AMD, and you know we we see headlines around you know that actually Intel have got the you know best options right. and, and the best bang for buck, uh, which is probably similar to what happened. Um, the last time I decided to buy some stock in AMD, and uh, and then Intel gave them a big swift uh, punch, and uh, AMD kind of went back to the trenches for a few year, years with a sort of smaller share. But the, the 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 really the bigger question is is whether whether Intel chips, yeah, are are broadly on their way out, and then and then it comes down to well, how does Intel make its money in the future yeah. through through you know making chips for others and uh, you know they, they've just uh, they've just in the process I think of spinning off their um, um, autonomous uh, driving uh, technology uh, so that that's getting uh, that's getting um, a listing um, so there's there's you know different things that they're relying on but they're they're hoping that that spin-off is going to give them the funding uh, for building the new plants right. but already the numbers, of what they're expecting that to um, uh, attract are much much lower than you know what they were anticipating. Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's a rotten a time ago. to be launching something. Where do the Chinese go for their chips? Well, I you know I guess you, you look in your your devices. You know, you've got uh, Samsung, uh, TMSC, Taiwan, and Intel. Those you know those are kind of I, I think the three biggest players. If I haven't given got mixed the, up and left somebody else. <laughs> given you've got the you know, the world is sort of fracturing into kind of trade blocks. Mm. Uh, do you think that China eventually will have its own tech uh, that will run quite independent of the American and Taiwanese chips? Well, that's what that's what they were trying to do up until in recent weeks where um, the US basically came out and, and said, if, you, if you're American working in this space in China, then you need... U.S. government approval to actually uh, carry out that work, otherwise you potentially lose your uh, U.S. citizenship hmm. or, or you know be in in some sort of pretty deep legal yeah, hot yeah. water. So what we saw was this mass re- resignation, massive uh, resignations in China, uh, and without that expertise from the U.S., uh, very you know very hard for China to actually uh, grow their. Uh, their capabilities on um, their ability to sort of innovate and, and produce um, produce microchips. Surely so it must be a matter, matter of time for China to catch up, and you know, not not short of their own talent base. They've they've been a, they've been quite a long way behind. Um, you know, maybe a decade or so, sort of behind in terms mm. of their tech. So the sort of chips you know coming out of China, pretty pretty poor. Uh, you know, we we heard about you know Russia not being able to get you know latest computer uh, processes and and so on, and their only option being some pretty uh, rank uh, uh, chips out of out of China that were mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. I, the bits and pieces I read you know suggested their performance is just an absolute joke, sure, and failure rates of um, you know a third to a half. So just in, you know, really, really poor. Yeah, and they're going to so, run out of. So um, there's a bit of a journey there for for, for China, as you say. China, yeah. you know, they're usually very good, and they will usually get there. And you know, like we're now seeing in sort of 
auto manufacturing and so on, they get to a point where actually they're incredibly competitive. They make a very good product, and uh, you know I would I would expect the audio auto industry over the next decade to just to look completely different. To yeah, what it, yeah. What it, yeah. I think the curve's inevitable. Today. You know, it's got a it, it's got a predictability about it in the same way that you know Japan, Taiwan. Even European countries, you know, they do catch up. Anyway, we better go on with other news. Yeah, so um, a few other things that sort of cross in there. We've got just, I guess, a couple of local things to chat about before we get back in and and thread some of these pieces back uh, back together. There's been a bit of coverage and and stuff uh, today locally around a suggestion that New Zealand needs a cyber minister. Mm, I saw that. Um, what what do you we, think? As we see cyber yeah. cyber attacks sort of ramp up. Well, it's interesting. You know, Australia have this role, and, and what we what we saw with the um, the recent uh, attack uh, over over there, which um, which hit Optus as you know major telco, um, was the minister really came down hard on them, and you know I've seen all sorts of coverage, and um, it seems like with this, and it's not just this role, but. Uh, we've got the government holding, um, you know, in this case, um, Optus to, you know, to account at a at a level probably we haven't haven't seen before. When you've got, you know, government basically calling out, you know, one of the biggest businesses in the country, mm. uh, quite you know, quite publicly and 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 saying, hey, you've you've really stuffed up. Uh, and you know, in the past in New Zealand, we've you know we've had. You know, varying people such as myself who kind of you know bang their fist on the table across mm. varying media and 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 make a bit of a noise when we see shocking things happen, like the the attack on the Waikato DHB and the amount of you know data that was that was uh, leaked there. Um, so, can a cyber minister help? I would tend to think so, actually. I don't know how many ministers <laughs> that we have now and how many is kind of the the right number, but even if it's for a window of time to change the the tide, because what I feel in New Zealand is we do pretty poorly from a cybersecurity perspective. Uh, we just, you know, we're just not operating at the level we should be. There isn't legislation there that that puts an onus on, you know, on directors and and businesses and mm. organisations to step up. Mm. So when something happens like what we saw with Waikato DHB or Pinnacle Health recently, and and you know so many others. There doesn't tend to be a, a huge consequence unless that organisation loses a huge amount of money yeah. off the back of it well, directly. And I got two thoughts on this, if I'm allowed a, a word in, because uh, it's quite hard to get a word in edgewise with you, Paul. When you when you do get on <laughs> on the you you are hundred percent right, Vincent. Right. Well, <laughs> if if it's for what it's worth, I I would support. You know, if I was given the chance to support or not, who cares what my opinion is? But uh, we need a cyber security minister for the simple reason that the first role of a government is protect citizens. That's why we have a justice system, why we have a police, why we have an army, uh, and, and you know why we have two planes in our air force. So. Um, protecting citizens these days is more than just a physical requirement. It's also a digital requirement. I don't think I need to make that case to you or or to our um, our audience. So in principle, yeah, that is a good role for a state to fulfil. And if you're worried about too many ministers, maybe it needs to be like your wardrobe, you know, sort of one in, one out to keep the numbers level. 
But the second thought, I, I as I read this, I thought actually that you know the very first thing a cyber minister should do is eat his own or her own dog food. They, Explain that for people that aren't familiar with the term. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the breaches that we see happen are in government departments or in government entities, and our state is digitally leaky. So before a minister uh, got involved in telling business how to operate, I would think maybe the first two to five years, who who knows, just choose a number, ought to be on increasing the, the safety, security and the practice of government data, of public data. And let's face it, that would be the majority because the state in New Zealand is large. You know, it occupies something like 40% of... Um, of uh, GDP, I'm, I'm not quite right sure about that, but we know that the the amount of activity in New Zealand is by the state is huge. The amount of data and quite important data, as you say, around um, health, around education, uh, around uh, justice, all that data is owned by the state. Um, and so, I'd think the very first thing to earn any credibility a cyber minister would need to do is um, is fix our our state services in regards to cybersecurity. Good call. Good call. That's uh, I, yeah. I'm I'm curious how how folks that are responsible for these different entities would feel about that. But it, it, I think it's fair to say it's quite variable across the different you know government entities because there are so mm. many entities that are you know effectively you know uh, government entities. Mm. And um, yeah, we, we see a lot of variability. I think you know some of them do do a, a really really good job, mm-hmm. um, but then you know we see we see other areas for for all sorts of reasons that lack the process, lack the commitment in terms of That's you right. know funds and so on. So right. you know, and it's and I don't think it's. It's not sort of super simple uh, to figure out, but that's that's why um, you know that's why you get you know some someone into uh, uh, into this sort of role. Um, now, um, just I guess slightly slightly tied in with that, um, you know, talking about privacy and cybersecurity. Um, this story came through last week from uh, from Pod News, which is probably the the biggest. Um, news outlet sort of globally that focuses on the podcasting world yeah. uh, around MediaWorks Rover podcast app. Now, this app has been doing something pretty dodgy, uh, but none of the media have sort of picked up on it in New Zealand. Now, I don't know whether that's because a reasonable chunk of the, the media in New Zealand is MediaWorks or that it's that other media don't want to step on MediaWorks toes. Uh, maybe they haven't got their houses in order. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Um, but the Rover Podcast app, and you know, it's um, it's something they've been promoting heavily over the over the last few years. Yeah. Uh, for listening to you know to their uh, to their their radio stations and to their podcasts. Uh, if you're running it on Android, has been leaking um, a whole lot of data, basically passing it back to the podcast publisher. So when you download a um, you know a podcast episode, usually uh, you know the the data um, that goes to the podcast hosting service is something as as simple as a as a URL for the file that's needed, right? That's the audio file. So when you download NZ Tech Podcast, you hit play or you hit download or you subscribe through your podcast app, that app usually would 
to the server, say, hey, I need blah, 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 dot com slash blah, you know, NZ Tech Podcast, maybe it's 601.mp3, and that's that's the file. Now, what uh, what MediaWorks app Rover has been doing has um, has been doing that, but after it, putting a little question mark uh, and then filling that with data, which is a you know, very common scenario on how mm. these things happen, uh, confirming to the podcast host the app version that's being run, whole pile of other data that just happens to include down to four digits, a GPS longitude and latitude of the user and a unique identifier for that user so that they can be you know, continuously tracked over a period of time. Um, Quite handy for advertisers to geolocate so they can, you know, send you that um, the whiskey ad just at the time of day and location that you want it. Yeah, so usually um, what an advertiser will get is an IP address which gives some information about lo- locality. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of what we ex- what we expect is they get the, you know, what the file is that you want and the IP address and then at the time, on the fly, the podcast um, host can generate a custom version of that podcast with inserted advertising based on where that IP address is. So mm. if that's an IP address from New Zealand, then it can you know drop in some some New Zealand advertising, and we you know we certainly see that on on a fair number of podcasts. Now, what this to me sort of suggests a couple of things. Um, one, this is the sort of data probably that um, that MediaWorks themselves have and and maybe you know are, are keeping to keep mm, track mm. of 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 things, and that um, they're not doing a very thorough job uh, of looking looking at uh, user privacy when this is what is actually being passed back to everyone. Um, yeah, my guess is they want this data for themselves, sure, and that's okay as long as they actually specify that in their privacy policy, which they haven't done. Uh, so they've you know been getting themselves into into a bit of hot water on that front. But you know then they've gone further than just taking that data for themselves. They've they've shared it out um, based on you know. Uh, whatever podcast you're listening to and handed it back. Now, yeah, there are, there's a couple yeah. of thoughts on this. I mean, they asked, um, Pod News actually asked uh, MediaWorks for a response and, and they didn't deny that that was a possibility uh, for publishers to, to know. And in fact, it, it seems like it's a deliberate um, decision to include that data um, just from um, what, what I saw. Um, and it's worth just pointing out that Apple users have the option to turn that that location data off. It's still within the Apple universe. There's a, a permissions um, setting, isn't it? And, and, and on Android, I guess that the, what happened here was the Apple. If you're using the Apple app, it wasn't giving any of this stuff. It was running as you would expect. That's right, because the it's default only, option is only the app. Yeah. No, regardless of what you set your phone to. I see. So this, but you know, both of these was you know regardless okay. of yeah. to to you know to a large degree. Obviously, if you turn your location off. It's not going to be able to forward back an accurate, you know, GPS longitude or latitude. Yeah, yeah, and and it would be very unusual for this level of data to get passed back. But reading the response from MediaWorks, I think they've they've addressed it and pushed out a new version of the, the app. In the new version, kind of uh, from what I can see here, the app released on 30th September is an approximate location accurate to within three kilometer square radius has now been rolled out as a forced update to prevent tracking the precise location of users. 
the, the value here for the media company is that if you own a billboard company, such as MediaWorks does, does yeah. you can triangulate the messaging that you organise between a phone, an individual, and your billboard to really optimise the advertising that goes to that individual. Mm, mm. This already happens, by the way. It's not unique to Rover in the sense that a company like Reach Media is able to basically use a kind of mosaic of census data along with NZ Post's actual mosaic database to more or less tell you what kind of people are driving past what kind of billboard. And it's it's actually not dissimilar to within a three kilometre radius because they know you know kind of where they live and and by triangulating kind of cell yep. phone data, census data, and a billboard location, you yep. can get quite specific mm. in serving ads to those. And where that works incredibly well is in a retail setting where um, time of day, mm. kind of uh, demographic, um, and the location of a I don't know a burger chain nearby or a local warehouse, you can be very specific mm. with your advertising. So Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's, this technology can be used well and can be used to do good things, but when it's accidentally, as in this case, being passed off to, you know, parties that weren't disclosed. Yes. Um, and, and, and look, as you say, they're, they're, well, there's two updates. So one update that they've just done since the story broke in the last, in the last few days, hmm. which is to stop sending all this data – and then there was the update on September the 30th, which meant even though it's showing longitude and latitude to four digits, now it's not actually, even though it's giving that much data, mm. um, it's already anonymized, you know, to that, that yeah. what is it, three-kilometer radius and yeah. so on. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I just think, um, you know, some of this technology, you know, can be used well, but when you as it looks like they were before September 30th, basically you listen to that podcast on a particular date and they've got a GPS location. They could map it out and go, oh, here's Paul at this address listening to your podcast at this time and mm. so on. And and you haven't been told that. That seems pretty dodgy to me. That seems a little dodgy, but in principle, is it any different from being sent specific ads based on your search uh, behaviour? Um, look, I've got no problem with the ad side of it, right? But it's it's that it's that privacy piece, and then what happens with that when it's undisclosed? So that's mm-hmm. why when I go to say the New Zealand Herald, and it's you know it's trying to get my location, um, I, I'm okay for them to know I'm in Auckland, but I don't need them to get a a map of every story that I you know or whatever news site, right? Now, obviously, if you are a subscriber to that then actually, as well as them getting money off you, um, they can actually, you know, put all these bits and pieces of data together mm-hmm. um, and, and collect data. So there's there's quite a few aspects to this that can play out, you know, positively and, you know, hopefully in terms of giving us better advertising. But on the flip side, there are these these privacy risks, right? And I think there's, yeah, you've got to balance that yeah. and we've got to have – We've got to be able to trust the entities that we work with, and and you know Google are part of this because this app's been approved by Google, uh, and Google said that it it does certain things with the data uh, through the Google Play Store, but actually that wasn't you know wasn't happening from an honest mm. perspective. So, but still credit to MediaWorks, they responded and yep. and they fixed it at least to kind of what most people would would regard as acceptable. 
Yeah, yep. I think they're they're uh, they're in a good in a good place now with that. All right. Um, okay. On to on to other topics. Samsung. What on earth is going on uh, at Samsung? I mean, this is something that that's sort of been bubbling away for for quite uh, you know for quite some some time in terms of. Um, the grandson of, of Samsung's uh, founder had, um, you know, got into some some you know pretty deep hot water. Uh, served two stints in jail on on um, bribery charges. Um, yeah, was expecting him to be uh, spending you know quite a quite a large portion of uh, of time in the in the slammer. Um, well, just list, read through the list of um, indictments, shall we? Have you, be, you've got be, it there? Because uh, Lee Jae-yong has now made ex- been ex- made executive chairman of Samsung. But mm. but but here's his, um, uh, his CV, which is impressive. And participate in an influence peddling scheme that helps oust a head of state, cop a five-year jail sentence for bribery, be indicted for your role in a merger that cemented your power, further cloud your reputation by filing careless paperwork about your financial affairs... <laughs> Take multiple doses of an anaesthetic that has legitimate uses but is notorious for being abused in pursuit of certain exotic, intimate, personal experiences. I don't wonder what they are. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's not go into that. And be appointed chair of the Earth's mightiest electronic company. So, you know, a path to glory that is not, um, you'd say, littered with uh, uh, good works. No, no, it, it just seems, it's yeah, it's pretty hard to get your head around from from my perspective now we, we've read recently that this seems to actually be sort of some sort of modus operandi of um, governments in South Korea that you know they um, um, you know they pardon people for some pretty serious crimes they who do. are mm. able to help um, I guess generate revenue for the country and uh, bump up the GDP or help it you know go in a particular direction and um, that uh, the, these Criminal things don't don't really seem to matter. Do it, uh, do what you like if you uh, run a mega, you know, multi-billion-dollar business. Um, uh, this is gonna, I'm drawing, going to draw a long bow with this, Paul. So, okay. um, yeah, Joe Allen might actually put, turn the microphone off if I go too far. But Korea is uh, one of the most hierarchical societies in the world, and there are some notorious failures, spectacular failures, that have happened as a result of uh, of poor leadership coming. Directly as a result of that hierarchical, um, so the inability of uh, young or um, uh, people lower down the ranks to call out the BS or the failures of their leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the two most notorious ones are the um, is the Korean airline seven four seven that flew into a mountainside, and they. It's a famous example um, that uh, is in the book Tipping Point. Um, by Malcolm um, Gladwell, uh, and also uh, the terrible um, drowning that happened a few years ago with a ferry, probably about three years ago, where um, the, the captain and all the crew were telling the passengers to stay where they are while the crew was jumping off the boat. Um, and I can't help wonder if there's a connection between that kind of um, that subservient and hierarchical uh, worshipping of those in authority and something like this where a family has continued its dynasty even though it doesn't deserve it, mm. um, continues mm. to be reappointed in positions of authority. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did you uh, turn the microphone off, Joe Ellen? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, because I, yeah. I'm sure some of our Korean um, audience will put me right about this. Yeah. I mean, I think this in itself is calling for there to be a whole podcast series on it. I mean, there must be so much that you could go into to delve into it. So I'm I'm looking forward to the <laughs> mini series or the something or other about it. But um, yeah, it's 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 sort of yeah, it's quite quite shocking to me. But uh, there we go. That is the world in which we operate. And um, and I actually happen to quite like this, a lot of the Samsung products, which makes it it makes it harder, right? Because you could go, well, yeah, I shouldn't buy from this company or support this company. But you kind of look around at all the big companies. Well, they do and, it well. And they, uh, they, you know, there's there's always something that you can look at and go, mm, yeah, that's not the best, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every, every direction we look. In fact, we uh, we must talk about Apple at some stage. They've put in place a new a new tax on advertising. So in-app uh, advertising now, I don't know, tax is, is maybe the is maybe an unfair word, but it it sort of feels like a tax, right? And so last week, Tuesday New Zealand time, Apple quietly updated. Uh, this is reading from The Verge. Apple quietly updated its App Store rules to require that iOS developers use in-app purchases and thereby give Apple 30% on sales of boosts for posts uh, in a social media app. Mm. Uh, and, of course, mm. the, the platforms that do these these boosts is generally Facebook and Instagram. Mm. So you've, you've got uh, Apple basically asking for a handout, a cut, whatever you want to call it, of that revenue from um, from Meta that owns Facebook mm. and um, and Instagram. Uh, this, while we you know we've been hearing you know over a period of time around varying frustrations, the suggestions of sort of antitrust cases and so on around Apple and the the cut that they already take through their app store, uh, which creates issues. For instance, if you want to sign up for Netflix, you won't see that option. Uh, in the Netflix app mm. on iOS anymore because Apple want their you know their thirty percent cut on mm. that, uh, and so you know, varying entities have, have found their their ways around it. Um, but uh, Apple are, are kind of pushing forward and um, working out how they can they can take a, a bigger slice. Well, they do it because they can. Right, you know, corporates are without a moral compass, and so because they have created this walled ecosystem that many people enjoy, including me, do like the Apple world, and they have earned my trust and they've earned my business. But as a result of that, they have now created, you know, the the App Store, which is an incredibly successful marketplace. And they can dictate the terms, and that, that then comes with uh, huge responsibility, right? They they ought to be behaving in a better way, but they can't help themselves, and that's because companies, by their nature, are without a soul, without a conscience, and so if they can, they will. And I, I think you're absolutely right that there is a moment in which, um, when market failure allows companies to be as dominant as as Apple is then there needs to be some sort of regulation or, yeah, is it regulation? Is it, is it some sort of mechanism that forces better behaviour out of, out of Apple? 
and in some ways we're kind of moving back to a feudal world where you know mercantilism rules. If you can put up a fence, uh, you will and charge people a toll as they go through. And it's not a government thing. It's just that you've managed to find yourself a piece of land that is a funnel mm. and can control mm. it. And and when that harms a market, when that harms citizens, then it's time for a, a government to regulate. And I think Apple has reached that point. I mean, they, they have this incredible power. They have great products, which I don't think people are going to be stopping, you know, in the same way people aren't going to stop buying Samsung products tomorrow. Mm. Um, you know, and this is not the sort of thing that really is going to make uh, much difference from a, from a consumer perspective. And in fact, you could say Meta is is one of the you know one of the most hated companies in the in the world over the you know, over the last couple of years in some regards. So um, yeah, it's uh, you can you can see why they make these moves. Interesting um, I, times. Yeah. Should yeah. we talk about Ford? Sure. Let's talk about Ford. Argo AI was one of the companies that they invested in, uh, along with uh, I think Volkswagen also invested in Argo AI. But um, you know Ford had a um, I used to, you know, a, a very key uh, stake in the firm, and mm. this is the firm uh, that that we've sort of been watching watching for a little while amongst a number of other players. Yep. Um, they probably weren't pulling the biggest uh, amount of attention and headlines, but you know, basically working away um, on autonomous uh, driving systems, mm. and so uh, over two billion. Uh, US dollars that Ford had put into Argo AI. Um, it looks like that uh, that chapter is uh, is closing. The size of the investment is eye watering. A hundred billion dollars. A hundred billion dollars. That's uh, that's more money than even you've got, Paul. Um, <laughs> has been invested into I don't the know promise. If you put together a hundred dollars. But, uh, <laughs> keep going. Uh, has been invested in the promise of level four autonomy. Uh, said CEO of Ford, Jim Farley, in a call. Uh, yet no one has defined a profitable business model at that scale. And the issue is that um, it's just taking so long to get beyond kind of limited autonomy to this full-blown autonomy. And, um, you know, there, there's really good reason for that. But, you know, it's difficult for many, many reasons. And $100 billion Seems like a lot of money, but that's kind of the scale of the hurdle that has to be overcome to get to fully autonomous vehicles. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've seen others, you know, pull out. Um, you know, Uber were investing in this space and, uh, you know, they, they've stepped back from it. Um, we, we see Waymo and, and you know, a, a number of others that do mm. have their autonomous and driverless vehicles on the roads and, you know, in the US right now. Um, so, you know, there, there's... There's that opportunity if you're in Los Angeles, if you're in San Francisco, yep. if you're in uh, Phoenix, uh, and you know, varying part other parts of the world as well, where where you can go and ride one of these vehicles. Now, that particular approach that Waymo and some of the others are taking is is down a track where, you know, they've got things mapped to a meticulous sort of detail, hmm. and so their technology you can't just say, oh well, let's turn it on tomorrow in Auckland. You know, they need to have that level of detail for it to operate and, and do a fair you know fair amount of testing, and and maybe that's the technology we end up with. But then you've got the the others, and I think this was this was the track that Argo uh, were down, which is you know developing a, a technology that, with its varying sensors and and so on, would ultimately be able to operate uh, anywhere with you know without having to have this super 
level of detail and and, and uh, you know super expensive sensors in their mm. in their vehicles. Eventually, mm. um, they, mm. they, they, I mean their their vehicles weren't uh, weren't low cost, but yeah, yeah no, I think it's it's fascinating to hear that you know Ford have taken that uh, track and uh, are winding down um, Argo AI. Uh, it's a lot of money to uh, just to flush down the toilet, isn't it? But it would have no doubt cost them a lot, lot more to keep it running. It's interesting that um, this technology is not going to be the uh, giant leap from one system to the other. It seems to be incremental. They talk about level two and level three autonomy uh, are now being built into vehicles, and that's what you probably experience in your Tesla, Paul, is the ability to take your hands off the wheel for certain periods of time, um, even though there's still a requirement for you to um, probably have your hands on the wheel um, or have your eyes pointed in a particular direction, stops you falling asleep. Uh, you know, some technologies just make a giant leap. Um, this one seems to be incremental, and it kind of reflects, I think, the complexity of two things. There's, there's the technology itself, but there's a wider problem, which is the... Uh, kind of legal and kind of, I suppose, human scale of the problem. The legal one is not, you know, is is not a small problem mm. around where does liability sit in case of accident? Uh, you know, is it, the, is it the car company? Is it the software company? Is it the driver? Is it the insurance company? Is it the someone that built the road? Is it the victim? Mm. Um, and that legal um, miasma is going to take a long time to sort out, and it's probably going to take a lot of, you know, failures and accidents to, <laughs> to actually establish what the precedent will be. So I think there's that. But then also I think there's which way is going to emerge as popular. Mm. Um, people like driving, you know, and, and I think that humans will be reluctant to take their hands off the wheel. I think some will. But I, I actually think that there's a huge appetite for people participating in their driving experience and they're not going to surrender, even though the technology might be safer, even though it might free you up to actually do your um, doom scrolling on Facebook or whatever <laughs> at the same time. I actually think people, you know, they love the power that driving brings and the freedom that it kind of implies. So I think there's more than just the technology to overcome. Uh, you know... Uh a lot of us, um, you know, don't mind sitting on a bus. You know, don't mind sitting in a vehicle where somebody else is on in mm. control. Or, or Not many, a, given a, um, New <laughs> Auckland's um, problems with traffic. Or sitting in an aeroplane and so on. So, um, look, yeah, I, I mean, I, th I, I think people will, will expect to have that option for, you know, probably maybe forever, right? Mm. Um, but it's interesting that it's an incremental change. It's not like, you know, I was going to pick up my phone, but, you know, the phone was like, Boom, it was there, the well, smartphone. see, this is mm. where I would disagree with you, Vincent, because I think most of our technological changes are incremental over time, but then something something flips. Now, whether that's from a marketing perspective, whether that's just a product that's, you know, that we click onto, but, um, you know, the things that made the iPhone what it was, most of them were actually around and evolving over over a long period of time before, say, the iPhone came to market, and even when the iPhone came out, you couldn't copy and paste, you couldn't install your own apps. You know, it was it was still incremental turning that first iPhone into 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 a good one. Um, but I guess the 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 point I would just add add to your uh, great commentary um, is that I think that the autonomous driving um, R and D that goes in is now. It's kind of going to compete with itself. So let's say that, I don't know, in 
three years time, Tesla finally get there and they've got their um, they've got their autonomous driving stack working, so you can go and sit in the back seat of your car. Um, and you're allowed to take your hands off and so on potentially, or, or you, you you know you can it will let you do that. Yeah, they are going to be competing when we look at sort of legislation and so on. They're going to be competing not over how safe a car was, say, five years ago, but that technology that they've actually helped improve in terms of making driving safer. So as their level two and beyond sort of, you know, technology gets better, driver assist type technologies, whether yeah. it's Teslas or Mercedes or, you know, Fords and so on, as that gets better, then we actually raise the bar in terms of what we would expect of an autonomous, you know, driving system. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and Musk, and we'll get to talk to him about him and Twitter in a minute. Um, Is he coming on the show? <laughs> Fantastic. I'll, I'll, take your, uh, I'll take your comments on, uh, on Musk. Um, but, you know, he talks about it being, you know, multiple times better than what it is when we're driving. So, so then it's like, well, are you comparing a person driving with these, autonom- you know, um, driver assist systems or are you talking about someone driving a, you know, a 1980s, you know, car without airbags and, and, and X, Y, Z? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's extra complication in there and how, how – how you will measure that, and and you know, yeah, who yeah. who is uh, who is to blame? Uh, and there will be accidents, and there will be deaths, mm-hmm. and um, mm. and yeah, it's 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 going to be very interesting. I think New Zealand has, I don't know if we have an opportunity, um, but in the same way that uh, we saw companies like Whisk uh, come here and sort of you know um, feel as though we had the right uh, environment from. Um, from a, a legal standpoint, for them to test their autonomous air taxi, uh, we had Google come here with Google uh, Learn and, and test that stuff. Uh, you know, in the early days, um, I think we should be creating an environment where those sort of companies can, you know, can come here. Yeah, um, because we, you know we want that cutting edge R and D. Just one more thought on that, if I may, uh, since I got the microphone. Um, there's a final twist to this, which I think has to do with the perversity of uh, the philosophical position that these companies take that they are still making vehicles for individual private use when we know that the challenge is around mass transport and mode shift. And so we're still working on like-for-like replacements of ICE vehicles for one person to travel across town occupying a huge amount of lane space, parking space and so on. A hundred billion dollars is so much money to spend on that level of perversity when what should be invested in and where the problem actually exists is figuring out how do we get people walking, cycling, taking mass transit in a way that's not currently dangerous, horrible, wet, annoying, sweaty, (laughs) takes ages, um, that is the challenge that we should be focusing on, and and the autonomous bit to me is, uh, I think, sort of at a level of moral corruption um, that is typical of a broken way of thinking about societies that we need to empower and liberate individuals to just go about their business. 
that is a bankrupt philosophy, and I would love to see a hundred billion dollars sold, you know, put into solving how, how do we get people places in climate friendly and in healthy ways, not clogging up motorways with metal boxes. That's a very interesting perspective, and I wish we had another hour to delve into it. <laughs> um, the, but folks that are interested in that topic can probably check out this climate business, and I'm sure you'll have some answers on the show. Um, but before we sort of, and I want to hear a little bit from you around what's happening in that world, but before we do, we promise we're going to talk about Twitter and Elon. Okay. Well, um, here's a quick segue into uh, Twitter and, and, uh, and Elon Musk. Elon Musk, unlike most of the other tech bros, actually is committed and is showing us a masterclass on how to address the, the really big issues around climate. And if it wasn't for him challenging the auto industry, we would be continuing to have this kind of incremental, you know, uh, piecemeal approach to moving towards EVs. It's thanks to his genius um, and his sort of his kind of un. Well, you know, these sort of once-in-a-lifetime kind of freak of nature that has managed to shove a whole industry into the future. L- long time overdue, but, um, it, you know, it's thanks to his uh, pioneering that all the other auto companies are following in his footsteps. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think you're right on that on that front. Um, and can we have a Hyperloop? You know, I the, want... The that would be <laughs> awesome. A Hyperloop to Tauranga, <laughs> Hamilton... Taupo. Well, there's this inconvenient thing sometimes, uh, Vincent, that we have to deal with is that uh, someone has to pay for this stuff. Um, I bet you and, if we asked uh, him, he would install it. And, anyway, and, I, should... and I think that's where, uh, where, where you know, Elon's had some success with, with Tesla is that people like to pay for that stuff and they're happy to pay for it for themselves. Well, do you remember him um, offering to install a mega battery in South Australia? Uh, if he did it by a certain date, he would pay. I can't remember if he was going to pay for the whole thing, but he paid for it. If he missed it. the deadline, That's yeah. right, and, yeah. and he met the deadline, and and good for them. They got a mega battery that mm. has um, been incredibly helpful for them to migrating away from coal, also providing quite a lot of stability into their electrical grid mm. in South Australia. Anyway, now, let's talk about Twitter. <laughs> so, yeah, what what it, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, you're you're reasonably you know active around the world of of uh, I like Twitter of, of Twitter, and, and, and you've been there a long time. I think I have been since two thousand and nine. I've got about four followers, so it's been really <laughs> successful for me. Um, you and me both. I I like it for um, a couple of reasons. I I don't experience the kind of hate that people talk about, and I don't know if it's because I'm so dull that I just never manage to attract it. But I enjoy great conversations. We have good banter, and there are lots of japes and funny puns that I enjoy, and I learn some things too. So I've had lots mm. of interesting links to research and so on that I've come across through Twitter. So, you know, I like it. I, I, I would worry that um, because he's such a maverick, um, that and he's he's such a maverick, and he seems to have bought this by accident. He's almost kind of like walked into an auction and put his you know scratched his <laughs> nose just at the wrong moment and bought this thing. And so, uh, unlike Tesla, and unlike uh, SpaceX, I don't think there is a mission here. I think he's sort of backpedaling on a mission. So he's now talking about it as a marketplace of ideas. It's about free speech and so on. I think he's ended up by mistake and he's having to kind of backfill the strategy to make it look like there's a sort of a, a, a direction of travel in it. And that kind of would worry me um, just as a user. But I suppose 
you know, who cares about me? What What's more important is um, we know that disinformation has a powerful effect. It can move markets. It can change elections. Uh, and Well, all, all information can, right? That's right. Right, 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 or right or wrong information that, has has an impact, and that's, that's why right. we have spin doctors. We have, you know, all these different sorts of you know sorts and, of things going on. And that's been recognised for for many years, and that's mm. why we have in science a peer reviewed science system, and it's why in media we have rules around uh, you know defamation, and also media standards. And, and it kind of cracks me up that people pile into media. Um, but they're very, uh, you know, mainstream media. They're the ones who have the legal responsibility. They also have an ethics, com- you know, kind of board that they have to respond to. Mm. They have their own um, internal requirements of at least two sources before you publish. Mm. Mm. Um, and yet on social media, it's Wild West when it comes to information. And, you know, that was starting to be pulled peg back a bit by their own kind of you know, voluntary standards and so on. Mm, but mm. social media still operates outside the, the realm of what other media have to, you know, um, operate within. And and so you've got to think, well, a maverick like this, is he just going to continue to abuse the privilege that they have or actually is he going to bring some genius to it as he has to other parts of his mm, businesses? Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, I wonder, you know, how we apply that to media because... You know, do you allow two people to sit down and have a, you know, have a conversation about whatever they please to have, you know, to have a conversation about? And well, we sh- don't and, actually, and, and we, to share their views, you know. No, we um, don't because we have rules about slander. Of course, yeah, but and it, you, and those rules are there to um, preserve the reputation and just curb yeah. the natural tendencies that we have to hate on people. You yeah. know, something yeah. that has been with us since Cain and Abel, but the social media businesses. For some reason, and we go into the long history of this, because it's been treated as data, not as information, have escaped the usual constraints that even this show, Paul, you know, you have to operate a business that, apart from anything, pays tax probably, unlike the others, um, the other social media giants, but also operates within a, um, uh, you know, rules around discourse. Sure. And as you say, there are laws of things around defamation, incitement of violence and so on, right? And those apply across a whole range of scenarios. So we've got those laws established. What I'm kind of curious about, I guess, is where Elon goes with how they will moderate it. And he said that they're bringing on board this content moderation council. He said it will not reinstate any accounts uh, or make any major content decisions before that's convened. So to me, that seems like quite an important piece of the puzzle is what, what do they land with there mm. and um, you know can you know can they land on something that um, you know creates this sort of digital town square that he's that he's talking about um, and you know you think about in a I don't know a normal town square if someone's saying something that uh, a lot of people don't agree with then um, you know they might get themselves into a spot of bother and so on um, so yeah how how do they draw these lines and and how will it um, how will it play out but, but this is not this doesn't not exist. You know, Facebook have uh, an ethics committee, don't they? They have a separate independent uh, committee that is there to look at, uh, set the rules around content. Um, m- most, um, let's see, let's choose, choose something else. Um, any 
any um, I think you could forum, say Facebook have had an ethics scandal. Uh, would be a well, that's what I'm talking about. That these these entities are a rule unto themselves, and they yeah, don't get yeah. treated as publishers. Yeah. And if you're a publisher, you have the um, the threat of defamation over you and also um, breaching media standards that you all mm. subscribe to. Mm. Um, I don't agree that there is no town square for debate. I think the town square has been fractured a little, but there has never been more places for people to have discussion and debate. Yep. No, that's, that's, that, is, that is true. Um, it has been fractured. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, and so if you decide to go down a, um, a YouTube rabbit hole, um, you know, that, that is your lookout. And, and there are a lot of rabbit holes you can go down. Actually, not, I'm, I'm going to change my point of view on that. It is your fault and you are manipulated by the algorithms that are designed to, um, you know, are rage machines that are specifically designed to reward you for your rabbit holiness. Mm. Very good. Unlike the media, which mainstream media, which you know continues to plod along, losing money but so, doing God's work. So everyone should go and watch the Social Dilemma, just so you get a little bit of a, a view on these things. Yeah. Was, you, you must have seen fantastic. It. Yeah. yeah. So um, so we'll we'll leave that on that front now. Before we before we wrap up, um, I am just keen to hear from you, Vincent, as host of this climate business. Um, what has been happening in in your world and in this this world of Climate and, okay. and business. Great. All right. Well, thank you for asking, Paul. Um, slightly different take on technology, but just bear with me. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the – if you look at any curve of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it is uh, – it, it looks similar to a kind of exponential curve. You know, it tracks along for 10,000 years and then suddenly has this fantastic spike. And the – challenge that we've got is now there is so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we have to draw down. So it's not just enough now to offset. So, you know, you uh, you might drive home in your um, gas-guzzling Tesla. I'm sure it's it's not gas-guzzling. But anyway, you get my point. You you know, you eat a steak, you plant power a tree. It by, power it by coal. The, these offsets don't work anymore because there is now so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we actually have to draw it down. And there's lots of investment going into drawdown technology. The, you know, the, um, ca- carbon dioxide um, extraction attracts billions of dollars, uh, and it's it's a manifest failure because it's really difficult. It's a very difficult gas to, to suck out and turn into, um, you know, into a solid that could be buried or into a fuel that could be reburned or whatever. Um, there is a technology that trees. Uh, well, just oh, I'm coming sorry, to it. Sorry. Just steady on. <laughs> uh, there is a technology that works incredibly well, and New Zealand is in a unique place to do it. And I know this because I interviewed Tim Flannery, who is Australia's kind of default climate commissioner and a leading voice in it, uh, Australian of the Year uh, in 2007, and an authority on climate change. And Tim Flannery pointed out that New Zealand has these wet, temperate forests. So it's more than trees, it's forests. Mm. And these forests exist in uh, only in a fraction of our country because 85% of them are cleared for eating yummy steaks and growing wool, etc. And actually we have a technology here that we could grow and uh, act as uh, a very powerful carbon drawdown machine. 
And the challenge in all of this, Paul, is that um, at the moment no one is incentivized to plant, maintain and look after forests. And there's a huge amount of effort going on in science and the finance community to figure out how can you as an entrepreneur, as a landowner, as someone that cares about this stuff, be rewarded for uh, restoring and um, encouraging nature-based solutions? And I know we're slightly off topic because we're not talking tech now, but it's really interesting to me that $100 billion can be inve- you know, invested in more individual cars driving around the city and sweet you know, what is it, two-fifths of Sweet Fanny Adams gets invested in nature-based solutions. And there is a solution that's staring us in the face. And we have the unique ability to contribute as a country. Anyway, that's what's been obsessing me this week. That that sounds pretty interesting. Um, So now folks that are wanting to kind of keep up a bit more on what's happening on the climate front, where do they they find your show? Uh, So easy to find on all um, podcast platforms. Um, it's called This Climate Business, and it's kind of in the name, it's Climate Business. And uh, Paul, I'm proud to announce this week will be the 100th episode. Oh, congratulations, Vincent. Thank you, mate. Well done. Well, thanks 100, for your 100 episodes. Thanks that's, for your support. Uh, yeah. That's really awesome. Um, great. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening in. We, we, we've uh, probably run a little over time, so we will we will wrap up there. Um, Only but 12 some, minutes over. Some, some really good discussion. So, yeah, thanks very much, Vincent. Thanks uh, for the opportunity, to, Paul. Great to catch up again. Always good to have mm. you on the on the show. And, um, yeah, folks, go and, go and look up Vincent and look up this climate business um, and uh, also the feed if you want to, uh, uh, you know, follow what the future of food is. Um, so thanks again to our show partners, uh, Vodafone, 2 Degrees, Spark, HP, Gorilla Technology, and deal. That's us for this week. Catch you again next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.